Hey, welcome everybody. I'm thankful that you're here today to worship the Lord with us at Grace Life. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to the book of Acts. I have a long message today. So long that the choir and the band, they were kind enough to just lead us in one song so we can just get right down to it. We've been in the book of Acts now for, I think today's our 24th message in that series called Church on the Move. And we're about to start Paul's second missionary journey in the book of Acts. But before we do, let's pray. God, we thank you for a new day, Resurrection Sunday, the day that Jesus came forth out of the grave and it was declared from heaven to earth that sin, death, and the grave has been defeated. We thank you that today the throne in heaven is occupied. And we thank you for your perfect word that guides our lives. And God, I pray that as I seek to preach your word today, that by your grace, my flesh would not in any way contaminate your word. And I pray the flesh of those who hear would neither contaminate the hearing of your word. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. So we're about to start Paul's second missionary journey soon. And in that missionary journey, he's going to go to places like Philippi and Thessalonica and Corinth and Ephesus, to name a few. But before we dive into that, I want to go ahead and try to address a recurring issue that we've bumped into already earlier in the book of Acts. But we're going to see this much, much more in the book of Acts as we continue to walk through it. The first place that we got a hint of this maybe in the book of Acts, is in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, if you want to look there with me, Acts chapter 4, verse 8. The Bible says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of our people, are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? Do you want to know how he was healed? Let me clearly state to all of you and to all the people of Israel, that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, the man you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. For Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures where it says, the stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Now you may think that Peter is merely preaching the gospel. He is preaching the gospel. But he is also taking a popular and political slogan and subverting it to the glory of God. Let me explain. You see, in the time of Jesus, Peter, Paul... And all the events that we're reading about in the book of Acts, the Roman Empire was conquering the world through their military might and through a mechanism called the Pax Romana, or Roman peace. And when your tribe or kingdom submitted to the Roman peace, Rome would nail their Evangelion announcement or their gospel announcement on a prominent post in your town for all to see. And their good news announcement, their gospel 
announcement said something like this, there is no other name under heaven by which you can be saved, save for Augustus. You could receive, in other words, salvation from Rome's wrath by having your tribe confess that Caesar is Savior and Lord. And so when Peter says in chapter 4, verse 12, there is salvation in no one else but Jesus, God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. When Peter says that, he nails the proclamation of the better news, of the better gospel to the Roman Empire. And he says salvation is not in Caesar, but in Jesus Christ alone, because he alone is Lord. In the next chapter, chapter 5, after having been arrested for preaching this message of Jesus, Peter tells those in religious authority that he must obey God rather than man. In chapter 6, Stephen gets stoned by an angry mob because he's preaching the gospel of Jesus. He's preaching the good news that Jesus alone is Savior and Lord. In chapter 12, James the disciple had his head cut off by Herod. And at the same time, he has Peter arrested and most likely has planned to do the same thing to him. But God delivers Peter from prison and he escapes as a refugee, as a fugitive rather. And these are just the names of the people that we know in the book of Acts. There's many other nameless followers of Jesus that were suffering because they did not candy coat their message. They did not try to make it politically acceptable. What exactly were they preaching? Well, the people who heard their preaching, they knew exactly what they were preaching. Let me fast forward you to Acts chapter 17. We'll soon be there as we preach to the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 17 here, Paul is on his second mission trip. He's in a place called Thessalonica. And the people in that city are hearing the true gospel. That true peace is offered with the one true God through his one and only son, Jesus Christ, who died for their sin. And has been raised to life. Acts 17, 5 says, But some of the Jews were jealous, so they granted some troublemakers from the marketplace. They gathered some troublemakers from the marketplace to form a mob and start a riot. And we know what those scenes can look like. And they attacked the home of Jason, searching for Paul and Silas so they could drag them out to the crowd. Not finding them there, they dragged out Jason and some of the other believers. Instead, and they took them before the city council. Paul and Silas have caused trouble all over the world, they shouted. And now they are here disturbing our city too. And Jason has welcomed them into his home. Watch. They're all guilty of treason against Caesar. For they profess allegiance to another king named Jesus. The phrase Caesar is Lord was the mantra of the time. That's how you profess your allegiance to Rome, by proclaiming that Caesar is Lord. But now this 
group of so-called Christians are proclaiming a different gospel. They're proclaiming that Jesus is Lord. Listen, we need to understand that the gospel was then and is still now a threat to tyrants. Tyrants demand complete allegiance. Tyrants demand that they be recognized as supreme. But Peter and James and Paul and Barnabas and Silas and others are proclaiming that Caesar is not the highest authority in the land. They are proclaiming that Jesus is king of all kings and that he is Lord of all lords. They are preaching that Jesus is supreme over all things. And we read in Acts, in our comfy, safe context, and we can begin to think to ourselves that what Peter and James and Paul were doing was merely limited to the religious realm. We can begin to think that this was just stained glass talk. And that's where this kind of talk belongs, is behind stained glass. We tend to separate, or at least want to separate, the secular from the religious. See, we, we say the same things those men and women in Acts said. We say Jesus is Lord, but do we mean it like they meant it? The people who heard the gospel being preached in the first century, they knew what was being said, and they knew what it meant. You're saying that a Jew has all authority in heaven and on earth? Right now, even over Caesar? Well, that's treason. You see, the Romans worshipped a lot of gods. And Caesar was fine with that as long as you recognized and professed that your God or your gods all were subordinate to Caesar and to his authority. You can have other gods and lords, but the Roman law said that every knee must bow and every tongue must confess that Caesar is Lord. You see, Christians in the first century were preaching a message that stood in direct conflict with the government. They were preaching that Jesus alone has all authority and that salvation and peace are in him alone and every knee must bow and every tongue must confess to him alone. Where did they get this idea that Jesus has all authority, even over Caesar. Well, they got it from Jesus. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, Jesus came and he told his disciples, I have been given all authority. It's already happened. It's already been given. It's already his I have been given all authority, not only behind stained glass, not only in heaven, but also on earth. And here's what's crazy. 
the apostles, they truly believed. They truly believed that Jesus meant it when he said that. Do we? Or do we just simply believe that's inspirational church speak? They believed it. And they proclaimed it. And everybody that heard it knew the implications of it. Did did you just say? You, You can't say. Because if you say that, you could lose your job. Or you might be arrested or beaten or even killed. And that's exactly what happened to many of them in the years that are covered in the book of Acts. Because they would not, they could not render to Caesar what alone belonged to God. And they paid for it. They were burned at the stake. They were wrapped in pitch and put on, put on poles and lit on fire to be Roman candles in Nero's garden parties. They were cut in half, skinned alive, beheaded, and fed to wild beasts. Why? It was a polytheistic empire. Why? Because they said to those in authority, there is an authority greater than you. And his name is Jesus. He alone is Lord. And we bow to him alone. We say he is Lord. But do we believe it? The way they believed it. Jesus is king and Lord. And he is the final authority over every single inch of life. Not just on Sunday at the church. Not one inch of this world is not his, and not one second of time is not his. This was the message preached by Christians in the first century, and it caused riots and mobs, and many experienced a type of being canceled that you and I can't even begin to imagine. But they preached on. And they preached the true and comprehensive and all-encompassing gospel. Of Jesus Christ, Lord of all. Christians in the book of Acts were enemies of the state. But let me be clear that was not their intent, that was not their desire. But following God has often made his people enemies of the state. Every generation seems to face their own tyrants in some place at some time. Human history is filled with the stories of the atrocities that have happened at the hands of tyrants when their subjects would not bow to them. And it can happen fast. Did you know that just a little more than 80 years ago, North Korea was considered the Jerusalem of the East? Pyongyang, the capital and largest city in all of North Korea just 80 years ago, was saturated with signs of Christianity all around. And you may not know this, but the current tyrant of Korea, Kim Jong-un, his great-grandfather was a Christian missionary 
that a hundred years ago was devoted to spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout Korea. How do you so quickly go from that to where North Korea is today? Here's how. The tyrants who took control, they knew that the Christian church stood in their way. Why? Because Christians believe that Jesus has authority over all the kings and kingdoms of the earth. And if a Christian truly believes that, it can make life really complicated for one who is demanding total submission. See, tyrants know that true Christians are not like the rest of their citizens. Church history overflows with examples of totalitarian leaders who pushed the true biblical church underground or to the grave. Today we see China, Afghanistan, Cuba, Iran, others. Even today, believers are growing increasingly alarmed in places like Austria, Australia, and even Canada. They're concerned with the trends that they've seen recently. So what do you do with all of that? In this other chapter in the Bible, Romans chapter 13. If you have a Bible, let's go there. Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Everyone must submit to governing authorities, for all authority comes from God, and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. So anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and they'll be punished. For the authorities do not strike fear in people who are doing right but in those who are doing wrong. Would you like to live without fear of the authorities? Do what's right, and they'll honor you. The authorities are God's servants sent for your good. But if you're doing wrong, of course you should be afraid, for they have the power to punish you. They are God's servants sent for the very purpose of punishing those who do what is wrong. So you must submit to them. Not only to avoid punishment, but also to keep a clear conscience. Pay your taxes too, for these same reasons. For government workers need to be paid. They're serving God in what they do. Give to everyone what you owe them. Pay your taxes and government fees to those who collect them. And give respect and honor to those who are in authority. Now... It might be tempting for us red-blooded Americans to want to put this passage in the category of Bible passages that we would rather ignore. But you know we cannot do that. And we should not do that. These verses are pointing us to things that are not just true, They're pointing us to things that are good and of great benefit 
to us. Fundamentally, we are not to see authorities as poisonous or evil. Human rulers are going to mess up. They're going to often stand for and promote things that aren't right or that we just don't happen to agree with. But here's the biblical reality. Chapter 13, verse 1, everyone must submit to governing authorities. For all authority comes from God, and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. We must not sin by living with a chip on our shoulder that says authority is bad. It's not bad. It's actually very good. Even more than that, earthly authority, according to God's word, is from God. And if you don't recognize that, and you choose to rebel against authorities, the Bible is also clear, you are rebelling against God. Verse 2 of Romans 13 says, So anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and they will be punished. But why does God put governing authorities into place? Verses 3 and on explain the why. God has given us rulers so that bad conduct is punished. It's clear in Romans 13 that God recognizes that in a fallen and sinful world, bad behavior, which will be present, will need a system of restraint that is in place for the good of society. But this is not a concern that citizens who do good should have, is it? Verse 3 says, For the authorities do not strike fear in people, who are doing right, but in those who are doing wrong, would you like to live without fear of the authorities? Do what's right, and they'll honor you. Verse 4 emphasizes that these in authority are the servants of God. The word servants, by the way, is the same word, diakonos, for our word deacon. These are God's servants. These are God's deacons to civil society. Different from his deacons in his church, both types of these deacons serve God, but one does so in the church, the other does so in society, and from time to time there is somebody that may actually do both simultaneously. Romans chapter 13 is telling us that followers of Jesus should do all that we can to obey whatever the authority is in the context that we live in. I think this can range from federal to state to local to employer to pastor to parents to any person that God has placed in authority over your life in some way. And God's people don't go around looking for ways to disobey those in authority. We do not want to undermine anyone's God-given authority. Instead, the Bible calls us to live at peace with all men. 
to, to be subject to the governing authorities. Listen, as followers of Jesus, we are called to be for government, not against it. The point Paul is making in Romans 13, I think, is if you are doing right and the government is doing right, no problem. You have nothing to fear. But if you're doing wrong and the government's doing right, you should be afraid. This is the kind of society that God has ordained. It's good, and it works. But what if you find yourself afraid of the authorities and the actions they may take against you, and you've done nothing wrong? What if those in earthly authority over you are commanding you to do something that conflicts expressly with Scripture? Or, what if they are demanding something of you that Scripture may not be clear on, but based on biblical principles and your understanding of how the Holy Spirit is guiding you, you find that you believe it is wrong if you obey their demands, and now you could face severe consequences for having done nothing wrong according to Scripture or your conscience. What do you do with that? Some in our church find themselves, do they not, in that place today. Romans 13 is clear on what the relationship between governing authorities and the Christian looks like according to God's plan. When things are working as they should. I think verse 3 is painting the picture of what God intends for this relationship to look like. Verse 3, For the authorities do not strike fear in people who are doing right. Is that always the case? No. Read a history book or the news. For the authorities do not strike fear in people who are doing right, but in those who are doing wrong. Would you like to live without the fear of authorities? Do what is right, and they will honor you. It doesn't always happen like that, does it? In fact, many times, far from that. But some Christ followers will say that Romans 13 is calling us to submit to our leaders no matter what they may subject us to. You have to determine if you believe that. Is that the case? That an abusive tyrant should be submitted to no matter what? What about an abusive employer? What about an abusive husband? What about an abusive parent? What about an abusive pastor? 
I think it's important to remember here that Paul is writing Romans 13, and he is the man that is most responsible for leading a movement throughout the Roman Empire that was politically subversive to that empire. But listen, it is also so important to note that Paul's motivation was not to be politically subversive. That was just the byproduct of obeying what God has called every Christian to do. To go and preach, proclaim the gospel. The good news of the kingdom of heaven. To all nations. The church is not political. But we cannot avoid that at times our faithfulness to God and to the gospel and to God's claim on our lives is going to have some political implications in this world. Paul is not calling for anarchy, nor is he calling for blind submission to all those in authority. In fact, let's reread the first verse of Romans 13. What is the very first word? Everyone. Even Caesar falls under that category. Everyone must submit to governing authorities. For all authority comes from God. And those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. Does that sound rebellious? Does that sound like a call to anarchy? Not at all. But neither is that a call to autocracy. Paul's implication here is that all authority is God's. All authority comes from God. And all those in authority would do well to recognize that. Do you think when those words of Romans 13.1 reached the ears of those in high places in the Roman government that they understood this to mean that Christians are happy to and will submit to whatever Caesar asked them to do? No way. The only way Nero would have thought that is if Paul had written, everyone must submit to governing authorities for all authority belongs to Caesar. And those in positions of authority have been placed there by Caesar because Caesar is Lord. But that's not what Paul said and Rome knew that's not what Paul said. Paul's not endorsing the Roman Empire in Romans 13, nor is he calling for an overthrow of the Roman Empire in Romans 13. He is, however, laying out what the dynamic between God's establishment of the state and citizens is supposed to look like. Romans 13, like any passage of Scripture, needs to be handled with a lot of care. And it needs to be united with all of Scripture so that we get the best opportunity to understand the mind of God on this matter. And the best way to interpret Scripture is with more Scripture. And on this particular issue of how the believer is to handle governmental authorities, decrees, decisions, and mandates, there's a great deal of biblical texture. The Bible calls us to respect, to show honor, 
sub, to submit to, to even pray for those who are in authority over us. But does that mean they are always to be obeyed? Let me lay some examples quickly in front of you of followers of God who did not go looking to be at odds with those in authority. But their faithfulness to God led them into that arena. Exodus 1. Hebrew midwives were commanded by the Pharaoh to abort all the baby boys that were being delivered. Verse 17 says of Exodus 1, But because the midwives feared God, they refused to obey the king's orders. They allowed the boys to live too. There's Joshua 2. Rahab hides the Hebrew spies in her home. And when the government officially questions her about it, she, she doesn't give them the full truth. In fact, she leads them away from where they were hiding. You say, that's Old Testament. Yeah, but in the New Testament, in Hebrews 11, she is commended for what she did there. And then there are the three Hebrew young men that refused to bow down to the king, Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel chapter 3, verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you've set up. And I think you probably remember that they were tossed into that fiery furnace. And the Bible says one like the Son of Man was walking around in that fire with those three young men who had justified their king. If that's not a heavily endorsement of how they handled this situation with those in authority over them, I don't know what is. Daniel chapter 6, verse 6. So the administrators and high officers went to the king and said, Long live King Darius. We're all in agreement, we administrators, officials, high officers, advisors, and governors, that the king should make a law that will be strictly enforced. Give orders that for the next 30 days, just 30 days, any person who prays to anyone, divine or human, except to you, your majesty, will be thrown into the den of lions. And now, your majesty, issue and sign this law so that it cannot be changed. An official law, the Medes and the Persians, that cannot be revoked. So King Darius signed the law. But when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home and he knelt down as usual in his upstairs room with his windows open toward Jerusalem. He prayed three times a day, just as he had always done, giving thanks to God. He knew what he was doing. He knew it was against the law. And he got tossed into the lion's den. But like the three Hebrew boys, I think you know he also got a heavenly endorsement while in the den of those lions. And we've already seen examples of this in our study in Acts. We saw it with Peter and others. And we're going to see more of this in the weeks to come in Paul's second and third missionary journey, which is part of the reason it's important for me to set the stage for that today because you're going to see that so much in the 
days to come. The Bible's clear. Following God at times will be a dangerous proposition. Following God may at times mean that we will find ourselves in conflict with ungodly laws and ungodly authorities. Mandates and decrees will sometimes be handed down that are just unjust and unlawful. And if and when we find ourselves in times like that, we would do well to remember these biblical examples. Remember this, they were not hot-blooded people. They were not hot-blooded people with rebellious spirits. What they were is they were simply earnest, faithful, self-controlled, followers of God. Following God will mean conflict in this world. You will, if you are faithful to Jesus, you will draw fire. You will be hated. So is Romans 13 in conflict with all of these examples? Not at all. It is essential that we do possibly all that we can. And I would say, I think oftentimes when we think we've done all that we can, we have yet to do all that we can. But we ought to do all that we can to obey the established authorities. But we are not like other citizens, are we? We know that there is a higher authority and a supreme law. We should do as much as we can do to obey man. That's important. It's important to our witness as Christ's followers. It's important to our testimony as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We must never go out of our way to cause conflict or to be hated. We should always strive to be filled with the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit bearing people is what we should want to be in all places, in all situations, at all times. But there will be times where our faith collides with our obedience to man and to governmental authorities. And when that happens, we must obey God rather than man. Now, are there hard questions we're going to face related to that? Absolutely. Yes. In those situations, is it going to be an easy cakewalk to form our decisions? No. Will all Christians come to the same conclusion and totally agree with one another? No. We may often find that we don't agree with our brothers and sisters in Christ on things that the Bible is not clear on. Go back and listen to the sermon a few weeks ago about cookies. 
Romans chapter 14. When we don't agree, we want to work toward unity around Jesus and the gospel. We must be devoted to not forsaking one another over these kinds of differences. These matters for us as Christ's followers, while important, yes, they are microscopic in the grand view of the totality of our king and his kingdom. These are small things in light of the atoning work of Jesus at the cross for our sin, his resurrection from the dead, and our mission as his church in the world. You know that I do not bring every political issue to this platform. But in a pastor's life, there will be a handful of moments where the majority of the church members are so consumed with a particular issue in the world that the pastor has no choice. To be a faithful pastor means he must address it. And this is one of those times. I'm getting requests on a weekly basis from church members for help to acquire a religious exemption from a person who has been mandated by someone in authority over them to get the COVID vaccine or to face consequences. So it's not that I want to address this today. I have to address this today. I am not addressing the vaccine itself. Let me say that again. I am not addressing the vaccine itself. That's a different conversation altogether. Get it or don't get it. As far as I'm concerned, that's between you and God. Do I think it's the mark of the beast? Absolutely not. Do I think it's 100% safe and effective? I think for a lot of people it's very helpful. I think it may have saved quite a number of lives. But my observation says it seems to fall short of being 100% safe and effective. But that's a whole other conversation. The issue that keeps coming to my desk from church members is that some of you are being forced, forced to take the vaccination Or face serious consequences. And as your pastor, this deeply troubles me. If it doesn't trouble you as another church member, you've not given enough consideration to what these men and women, the situations they're finding themselves in, and the different set of variables that they may have from your whole set of variables. And so the mandate or the vax passports trouble me deeply as a Christ follower, and I'll give you one reason why. I have more than one reason, but just one reason is all I can cover today, and for me, that one is more than enough. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Paul says, don't you realize that your body is the temple? Your body is the temple? Of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God. You do not belong to yourself. For God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. 
Paul makes two big points here to the Christian. Number one is this. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. In other words, this flesh and these bones are a literal house for Almighty God. This is more than simply a physical shell that I do with as I wish. No, if you're a follower of Jesus, your body is sacred. It is connected to God, and your body is valuable because he made it and he lives in it. The second point Paul makes is this. You're not your own. Your body, physically, as well as spiritually, is owned by God. Look at verse 20 again. For God bought you. Bought you with a high price. Christians are not like other citizens. Because we are under the ownership of another. We are owned by God. God owns us. God owns our bodies. And therefore, we must be careful what we do with our bodies because they are under His ownership. And nobody, not even you, should do something with it or to it without prior consent from the owner of the body, which is God. Therefore, no person, employer, or government has the right To usurp the authority of a body that is purchased and owned by Jesus Christ. He alone is the maker, Lord, and owner of our bodies. Jesus says in Luke chapter 20, Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and give to God what belongs to God. My body's not my own, and it is certainly not under the ownership of any earthly authority. Jesus bought our bodies, and if we yield them now to those in authority, where will this end? Like rivers need banks, those in authority need boundaries. And I can overlook the river getting out of its banks in a lot of places. But this is a place, and as this congregation that God has entrusted to me, you need to know this about me. This is a place where I draw the line. I'm not asking you to draw the same line. I'm not asking you to draw it in the same place where I'm drawing it. That's between you and the Lord. But based on the authority of the Word of God, I consider God's ownership of my body sacred. Jesus purchased it with his blood. He owns it. I will not hand it over, nor will I hand over the body of my wife or my children. I will not hand our bodies over to another simply because they have told me to do so. I may do what they ask of me, but I will do it because God has directed me that this is what he would have me to do with my body. Not because I'm forced to. Not because I'm coerced into doing so. Also, as your pastor, you need to know that there's something else that I consider sacred and will stand against any earthly power trying to take control of it. Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul is speaking to some pastors. He's not talking to the membership, he's talking to pastors. I don't expect that you 
would always agree with me. Sometimes I look back and I don't agree with me. I would hope as a church member to their pastor, you would recognize that there's some things that I'm responsible for that you're not responsible for. There's some perspectives that I must have that God's not asked you to have. And this is one of those places. Speaking to these pastors in Acts 20, verse 28, Paul says, So guard yourselves and God's people. Feed and shepherd God's flock. Whose flock? God's flock. His church. Whose church? His church. Purchased with whose blood? His blood. Over which the Holy Spirit has appointed you, pastor, as leader. Earthly rulers have been known to make the mistake of thinking that they run the church. They may wrongly think that the church is a part of their domain. And while it is true that Christians are called to do all that we can to obey civil authorities, it is never the case that an earthly human ruler is the head of the church. There's only one head of the church. His name is Jesus Christ. He bought the church with his own blood. He owns his church. We are God's flock. No one else has that claim. And remember this, only Christ rules the church. Only Christ runs the church. Only Christ regulates his church. And he does all of that through his word and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And if we do not fully believe this, we will eventually hand the church over to some earthly authority that has no God-given right to it. Never in my wildest dreams did I think I would stand at both of those sacred lines in the sand within 18 months of each other. I did not ask for that. I don't expect you to agree. Just a little understanding. Let me close by making my position as clear as I can. The vax and the mandate are matters of conscience for the Christian. I ask you this. No matter who you are, how you're answering these questions. And you don't have to answer it like I answer it. Again, I may say, these things are microscopic in light of the cross and an empty grave and an occupied throne. Okay, but let's ask ourselves these questions. Can you support your decision biblically? Does anything about your decision violate God's moral law? Does anything about your decision violate your conscience or convictions? Can you, will you glorify God and honor others with your decision? Even if they may have firm and opposite convictions as you. Are you sure that you are guided by biblical principles or is it something else? Maybe fear of a virus or fear of a dictator. Or maybe it's anger that's driving you, or the desire for ease, or comfort, or loyalty to some earthly person, or personality, or political party. 
Listen to me, God's people. We cannot continue to blow in the wind with every issue and every opinion and every argument that comes along. Biblical principles must guide us, not politics, not personalities, not panic and not persuasive speech. We are going to find ourselves in the days to come faced with all kinds of issues. Issues are many. Principles are few. Issues change always. Our principles never do. So this is an unchanging principle that I'm staking my life on. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God's what is to God what is God's. That's a red letter principle by the way. So in closing, let me be clear about how that principle's guiding me in relationship to the vaccine mandate. I am not not arguing that I have religious reasons to not take the vaccination. I think there's good biblical arguments there. But the mandate is coming from people who want you to choose that as your argument because they already have counter-arguments ready for that. But that's not my number one issue. I, instead, would be asking to be exempt from the vaccine mandate, the mandate, not the vaccine. The vaccine doesn't trouble me. The mandate troubles me. I would be asking to be exempt from the vaccine mandate on the biblical grounds that God, not the government, owns my body. I would make that argument as an employee. And if I owned a business that was being forced to do this to my employees, this would be my reason for not enforcing the mandate on my employees. As an employee, a business owner, or a manager, I would not allow myself to be coerced into being complicit in this crime of theft. This mandate is looking to take something that is not the government's to take. Authority over another person's body. Especially the body of a person that's owned by God. The pro-abortion crowd has said for years, my body, my choice. The hole in their slogan, however, is the reality of the presence of another living person's body inside the mom's body. But if I'm not a Christian and I'm opposed to the vax mandate, I'd argue the right of bodily autonomy. I would claim my body, my choice. That would be for a non-Christian a valid argument in this case. But I'm a Christian. My opposition to the mandate goes beyond personal bodily autonomy. My opposition to the mandate goes back to an old rugged cross, to an empty grave, and to an occupied throne, and to an any moment blowing trumpet. Because you see, one day this body is going to go into the grave, but not to stay. It will be resurrected and made new and last forever because I have put my faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who loves me and who gave himself for me. At the expense of his own life, he has taken ownership and lordship of mine, my heart, my mind, my soul, and yes, my body. Belong to him. Let's pray. Would you stand with me? God, help us in these strange times that we find ourselves in. 
as the powers of this world increasingly demand our full allegiance and promise to save us at every turn. May we not shrink back from believing with all our hearts and saying with all the saints that have come before us that Jesus Christ alone is Lord. Grace Life, there will be many things we don't agree on. But I trust we agree on that. That He is Lord. 